welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Dr. Robert M. Farley, Senior Lecturer at the University of Kentucky Patterson School of Diplomacy and International Commerce. We will discuss his new book, Patents for Power, Intellectual Property and the Diffusion of Military Technology, which he co-authored with Davida H. Isaacs, and which is published by the University of Chicago Press. So welcome to the show, Rob. Uh, thanks for having me. It's a delight to be here. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to talking to you about another provocative book. I enjoyed your last one about why we should abolish the Air Force. And I think this one was equally provocative and deeply researched. So to, just to begin with, congratulations on the new book. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, it's, 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 good to, it's good to actually be close to having it out in print. I thought we could start by just having you talk a little bit about why you think that intellectual property as a legal concept is relevant to innovation in military technology in the first place. In other words, why should states respect intellectual property claims? Or maybe rather, why do states respect intellectual property claims? Sure. So um, I think here it would kind of be helpful to take a real serious bird's eye view and sort of take a look at why this would appear to be a problem. Um, so th there is a pretty uneasy relationship between traditional international relations theory and the concept of law. Um, sort of, and especially the concept of uh, law, where law applies to the security sphere in any kind of meaningful way. Um, so Basically, over the course of the 20th century, uh, this this um, paradigm of how we look at international politics we call realism emerges. And realism basically, you know, its core insight is that the international system is not like the domestic system. Um, people follow laws in a domestic system. They don't, they don't follow laws in uh, an international system. Um, and we can't really treat uh, the international system as a legal space. Um, and we especially can't treat it as legal space when guns and planes and tanks are concerned, because why would a country ever bother to obey the law when it's survival was at stake? Um, and so in that context, um, it's, it's actually kind of su a surprising thing to find that um, intellectual property law, which is just right at the absolute core of um, how states protect themselves, right, in technology, the military technology, um, why are states obeying uh, international uh, legal uh, precepts uh, that are associated with intellectual property law? Um, why are they creating fairly robust systems of intellectual property law and even applying those to their own uh, defense industrial bases? Um, how are those systems affecting how uh, arms get transferred between countries? Um, how are they affecting how countries steal technology and steal ideas um, from one another? Um, and so that was was basically those were the questions that drove um, this study. And you know what we found in the end is that you know, really there are a lot of surprising ways in which um, intellectual property law, patents, trade secrets, especially um, interact with with traditional, hardcore military technology, international relations precepts. And so that's that's basically how we got here. Well, so the audience for this show is primarily people who are involved in the law who might not be so familiar with 
international relations scholarship. So I wonder if you could just expand a little bit for listeners on sort of the framework that international relations scholars use for thinking about the relationship between states and specifically how we might think about the kind of law, legal or law-like claims that states might make in international relations contexts. Sure. So, um, as I suggested, there are there are a few big competing paradigms in uh, international relations theory, um, most of which began to emerge in you know, midpoint in the 20th century. Um, one of these, broadly speaking, is something called realism. Um, and I know realism means a different thing in, in literally every different field in uh, law and social science. Um, but where international relations is concerned, realism essentially has this insight that um, states are going to be um, security seekers, that they seek security on their own. Um, only states can protect themselves, and so states have to worry about themselves first. It's very Hobbesian, and it draws directly from Thomas Hobbes. Um, it's a very Hobbesian way of thinking about the world. Um, and then this is contrasted with a much more liberal understanding of international politics where um, the space between states is feel filled with things like NGOs and um, uh, international organizations. And law is a meaningful thing for states, right? States like to obey the law. They like to make laws um, to regulate relations between them. And so you have this contrast between it's like what we used to call the paradigm wars, um, but between these two paradigms, and there are even a few others out there, but liberalism and realism are, are the big ones. Um, even liberals have tended historically to grant that in the security sphere, right? So where military technology and military production are concerned, broadly speaking, realism reigns. Right. So countries tend to go their own way um, and not take law all that seriously when their own survival is at stake. Um, and where we come to something like patent law and uh, intellectual property protection, that becomes a question then, you know, why would a state ever respect um, uh, the intellectual property protection of another state um, when it was seeking its own security? Right. Um, and we have lots of movies where uh, and other sorts of works of art where this is apparent. Right. So if you've ever seen, for example, The Hunt for Red October, you know, here's a submarine. The Russians have it. It has cool technology in it. Right. The Americans don't hesitate to think that they have a right to steal that technology. Right. They don't say, oh, well, you know, actually, the, the, the Russians do have a patent on this. And, it, you know, and there are trade secrets here. That would be bad. Um, that doesn't really come up uh, in that movie. Right. Another one is. Uh, Firefox, right, where Clint Eastwood thinks in Russian so he can steal a Russian fighter jet. Um, and what what we found is actually the, the world is much more complicated than, than realists would, would assume it was, even with respect to military technology, um, because there are lots of times where, you know, a country wants to buy uh, some weapon or some technology from another country. Um, and when it does so, it has to give some sort of assurance that it's not just going to reverse engineer that um, and produce it on its own and then sell it, uh, competing with the original seller. Um we find that uh, even in military technology, which is supposed to be sort of the most tightly held um, uh, core interest for states, 
States tend to outsource production quite a bit. So the F-35, the F-22 are really complex military machines, and they are, in a sense, produced all over the world because different components go into them. Um, and intellectual property protection and intellectual property law has to regulate those transactions between producers in Europe and Japan and producers in the United States. And so there has to be a mutual acceptance of at least some of the precepts of intellectual property protection. Um, and what became sort of more, most interesting is that even among what we would say the bad guys, um, even among the bad guys like Russia and China, um, there are um, sort of important steps to recognize and to grant protection, um, uh, often with reciprocity, um, uh, for uh, certain kinds of technologies and how these countries want to use technologies. Um, and so it's it's interesting that even in this area where realists and even some liberals are willing to grant that um, the law should not be, uh, that the law is actually, these transactions are drenched with the law and with intellectual property protection. Well, so I mean, international intellectual property protection is a relatively recent sort of like late 19th century phenomenon. I wonder if you could kind of just give kind of a potted history of the sort of relationship between intellectual property, international intellectual property, and innovation in military technology? In other words, sort of how did countries think about military innovation prior to the adoption of international intellectual property laws? What, if anything, changed when kind of civilian intellectual property, international intellectual property laws were developed? And when did we, when and why did we start seeing a sort of intellectual property aware or respectful attitude among states in the sort of defense sphere? We have so states have used patents. Governments have used patents um, for almost as long as we have had patents to um, grant certain kinds of monopolies some of which are associated with national defense. Um, and so we have examples um, from the Dutch and from the English granting uh, essentially patents to particular corporations or particular individuals um, in return for developing some item of military utility. Um, and, you know, whether this is something that goes on a boat so that they can make fresh water or um, some something that goes on a ship for uh, uh, determining where you are or some new kind of cannon. Um, or other kinds of gun. So there is a pretty long history domestically of countries using, you know, what would be a very rudimentary patent system um, to try to drive some kind of military technology. Um, but I think an important component about, about this and something that, that we don't really readily appreciate as moderns um, is that in the, in the military sphere, um, we have not always or, or it has not always been accepted that technological change is going to be continuous uh, and that it's going to be something that um, is within our reach. Right. So today, you know, we can look and say we know that we're going to have better technology to build a better fighter plane in 15 years. And here's how we're going to go about developing that technology. Um, 
that sort of universe and that way of thinking about technology was not something that was obvious to people in the 19th century. Um, and so they didn't think about um, sort of innovation and driving technology in the same way. Um, and so there wasn't then necessarily this connection between um, uh, uh, you know, what would be a really robust IP protection system and a really innovative, technologically innovative economy because nobody really granted that there was something like a technologically innovative economy. Um, but still, you know, people invented stuff. And as, you know, the great transformation, the great technological transformation of the late 19th century ensued, um, it brought about a lot of changes in how militaries organized themselves. Um, and so, and, and this story is detailed in Catherine Epstein's wonderful, wonderful book, Torpedo, um, where uh, she goes through how um, intellectual property law in the United States first began to be applied in a serious way to uh, military technology. And this was right around the turn of the century. Um, and what, what was happening around the turn of the century was that um, the arm's length relationship between military producers and the government was beginning to give way. Um, and this was especially happening on the naval side uh, because shipbuilders could no longer and, and other kinds of innovators, you, you couldn't simply build a new warship or some sort of new technology, then sit around and hope that the government would buy it. Um, because the upfront costs, the upfront investment of making new military equipment and new military technologies was so significant um, that, that you couldn't do it unless you had an absolute guarantee that the government or the U.S. government or some other government was going to buy it. Um, and so we began to see uh, basically a relationship between private industry uh, and the government where the government would essentially either guarantee certain kinds of purchases or would foot part of the bill for research into new kinds of military technology. Um, and when that started happening, uh, both the government and the uh, individuals and firms that were starting to produce this stuff had to work out some uh, way in which ownership would be decided, ownership would be determined, ownership of the, of the innovations in question, ownership of the materials in question. Um, and as Epstein details um, in a particular case study, which is the torpedo, right? So we used to call way back when we called anything that was underwater that could blow up a torpedo. So a mine, for example, would be a torpedo. But around the turn of the century, we start making torpedoes that have actual engines in them and they can run and, you know, destroy stuff. Um, it's around this time that um, we have, according to her, really the founding of the modern defense industrial base because the government starts working out in the, the intellectual property rights that the developing firms, that the developing uh, innovators, and that the government itself will possess with respect to equipment and technologies that are developed um, uh, for national security. Um, and so the story she tells, and in some sense the story we're telling, is that in fact, when you're talking about a modern defense industrial base, um, when, which today we think of Lock, Lockheed Martin, and Raytheon and so forth, really public-private uh, cooperation is at its very heart. And at that very heart, what allows it to function is robust intellectual property law. Um, and so um, when you think about anything that the defense industrial base does, you're, you're sort of making a claim about IP, about this IP relationship. Um, but what's interesting about that is that people don't think about it in that way. 
um, that even like modern defense industry doesn't necessarily think about it in that way. Um, and that more broadly, the defense industry has been pretty far behind in terms of um, creating international IP and, and even doing a, a lot of IP work um, domestically. But there, there are plenty of examples from the early 20th century, and a, a great one is the, the Wright Brothers Patent War, um, where in the United States, we were the, the very first to have heavier-than-air fixed-wing aircraft um, developed by the Wright Brothers. But by the time World War I came around, the uh, U.S. Air, aero, not we call it aerospace now, but the Euros, U.S. aeronautics industry was dramatically far behind the Europeans because the Wright brothers refused to sell or license any of the patents that were associated with the airplanes that they had created. Um, and they had a different relationship with Europe and Europeans um, also had sort of their own stuff going on. Um, but so there's 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 lots of interesting stuff here about how patent law can be used to make a defense industrial base more innovative and how patent law can restrict what uh you know defense industries are able to do so different procedures and different ways of thinking about it that can either make your country more lethal or that can make it less lethal in the defense sphere well, so you talk about many different kinds of intellectual property in the book, but I really felt like the two kind of core ones you were talking about were utility patents and trade secrets. So I wonder if you could talk briefly about the differences between those two, and in particular, how the differences between those two forms of intellectual property protection are salient in an international relations and kind of defense innovation context, in particular in relation to the kind of public-private partnerships in the defense sphere that you were talking about earlier. Yeah, well, so my co-author um, is an actual IP attorney, and she couldn't be here today. And so um, often I defer those kinds of questions to her. Um, but so what, what I would say with respect to patents, and, and we can see this um, because patent protection, uh, even among great powers, is pretty uneven um, in their own defense industrial bases. Um, you know, what, what patents en enable to happen in a defense industrial base, um, even in a domestic context, is uh, it enables protection for a particular inventor, right? That it gives, as you know, and as everyone, everyone here knows, right, gives certain, certain time-delimited monopoly rights over um, certain kinds of um, inventions. What we find is that what this enables um, is innovation uh, across an industry on a pretty wide scale um, because um, inventors and firms are then willing through licenses to share um, a particular patent, right? So um, if you are Raytheon, you can share this with Lockheed Martin or Convair or whatever, um, what we find in countries that have zero or very little patent protection um, is that their defense industrial bases um, will uh, suffer pretty dramatically from an inability and an unwillingness of particular firms to share. Um, and a really great example in this case is uh, the People's Republic of China in the 50s and the 1960s. Um, most people don't know that the Soviet Union actually had a pretty robust patent system. It had it had a patent system that was sort of fully uh, up to date with the czarist patent system, which was fully up to date with the 19th century expectations of what patents would do. Um, it's just that nobody had any private capital, and so it didn't really matter. Um, but in China, they really tried to go. They tried to go. I, 
IP free, basically. Um, and uh, they try to work without patents. And, and what we find from an analysis, and this is by, by we, I mean sort of the broader scholarly community. And so this is, this is other people's work, um, is that producers and inventors in China um, who were working in the defense sphere, um, they would work in a particular lab or a particular firm, um, and they would be unwilling to cough up any invention that they had because there was no protection for it. Um, that they receive, they would receive no credit for it. Um, and so different laboratories and different workshops and different inventors um, simply wouldn't share um, what they had available to them. Um, and this really undercut, especially during the Cultural Revolution period, undercut defense innovation in China, right? Where, where literally um, you would have an invention in one place and it would not find its way into the broader defense industrial base because there was no, there was no legal protection for it. Um, and so that's the patent side. I mean, I think the, the trade secret side is, 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 is fairly straightforward, right? That, um, uh, you know, what, 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 what trade secret protections enables uh, are, are certain protections against kinds of um, industrial espionage that uh, either firms can take or foreign governments can take. Um, and that, you know, trade secret protection then sort of provides a tool for the state to um, eliminate those particular kinds of uh, espionage or at least be able to clamp down on those, those kinds of espionage. Um, and we see Sort of in the modern context, we see what um, China and to a lesser extent Russia um, doing is to essentially try to steal trade secrets from um, from U.S. Uh, producers. And we also see, for example, the Chinese trying to steal trade secrets from from the Russians, um, which really speeds up a lot of stuff associated with uh, reverse engineering technologies and and, and so forth. Um, so I think that both of those really, uh, you know, are, are part of this story about, um, even though the book is named Patents for Power, they're still part of the story about um, how IP protection uh, matters for the defense industry. Well, I mean, one thing that really struck me when I was reading the book was the kind of competing incentives that states seem to have in relation to innovation and intellectual property protection in this sphere, because it seems like on one level, the kind of the patent story that you tell is like a story about sharing innovation among domestic producers in order to maximize innovation and encourage, you know, collaboration among firms in order to move technology forward as quickly as possible. But the problem is that patents are public. And so, you know, the very idea behind a patent is making information available so people can use it. And in an events context, that's often not ideal, <laughs> right? And so there are incentives to go with trade secret protection as well. And yet, you know, if that means sort of less sharing, it might mean less innovation. Sort of how do states deal with that back and forth and what kinds of legal constraints or maybe international norms have developed to sort of manage those two relationships how do you how do you square those two competing incentives well, I mean, in in the United States and also elsewhere, with respect to um, patents, there is a there is a system that um, will effectively um, there there are different sorts of classification um, uh, which you know effectively will make um, patents secret um, and only available to certain specific producers, and it and it kind of helps that 
the defense industry is just a great big oligarchy anyway, um, you know, that it involves only a very small handful of firms and you can police those firms fairly readily. Um, with respect to the relationship between um, defense firms and government, there is um, this tension between, the, on the one hand, the patents and, and the other hand, the trade secrets, because um, the defense firms certainly do have an incentive to keep um, as much as possible um, uh, secret, as many techniques possible as secret for fear that um, the government will essentially want to buy it all and then will you know, restrict its usage, restrict its transmittal, and basically restrict the profits that the, that the company has. So again, I think, I mean, I think a lot of the answer goes back to the fundamental structure of the defense industry um, in that, um, I mean, for, for one, uh, the government can sort of usefully classify and make secret um, patents, which is sort of a weird thing, right? Because you said it's already, it's a really public thing, but on the other hand, you can make patents secret, but it can limit the um, extent to which um Patents can be shared between actors, um, and and we see this quite a bit in terms of how um, the government can essentially sort of you know grant patents but keep those patents basically secret, um, and they can then only be shared among uh, the small number of firms who are useful contributors to the defense industrial base, and then you know, they'll be shared with the subcontractors and and, and so forth. Um, but certainly, uh, you know, the secrecy aspect um, is a, a big deal for governments um, and being able to protect um, that secrecy through um, sort of all sorts of uh, uh, sort of levels of classification and so forth. Um, Essentially, on the patent side, you know, that's why a, a lot of defense-oriented patents are not then sort of fully available um, and why in cases where the government has invested in the technology in the first place, it also has the right to at least domestically limit usage of those patents again to a um, – of those technologies to a very few actors. Um, now, when you sort of escape the bonds of a domestic legal system. Um, and uh, the question then becomes, well, would you, you, we have the patents in front of us. Um, the Chinese can just download the entire thing um, and use it to reverse engineer. Then the short answer becomes, yeah, we, we, we can't stop them from doing that, which is why there are protections on certain levels of access to different kinds of patents. Um, but then again, there are countries we fully trust um, to have their own sort of fairly robust uh, IP and protection systems. And the, with those countries, um, we can share sort of whatever knowledge and, and sort of whatever technologies we have in order to sort of contribute to a more robust international defense industrial base. Well, so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the impact of the increasingly increasing importance of digital technology on military innovation. Because you note in the book that, I mean, that seems like kind of a paradigm shift in terms of how we think about innovation in the military technology sphere. And more specifically, what kinds of firms are involved in innovation in the military technology sphere? And I wonder if you could talk about why that matters and then why that may have changed the way that we sort of think about intellectual property and how intellectual property rights should be governed in this particular space. 
what digital has done um, has been to dramatically reduce um, the uh, what we would think of as, as basically the transaction costs for shifting knowledge from one place to another, for sending knowledge to, from one place to another, and that in it that has. Um, basically affected how firms um, structure internally and how ideas move across firms, um, but it's also affected how states can access um, technologies, can access knowledge from other states, right, which we traditionally would call espionage. Um, in a lot of ways, it's just sort of really sped things up, um, but it's also sort of produced a whole bunch of new avenues uh on the espionage side, a whole bunch of new avenues of attack for countries to try to sort of piece together certain kinds of digital knowledge that are associated with um, associated with military technology. Um, and this also sort of goes back to this question of what is the defense industry and how is the defense industry structured? Um, so in the United States, we have a few big private defense firms um, and we have um, uh, you know, the state, the military services and so forth. Um, and traditionally, these have worked together um, to produce, you know, I need this military technology. Can you produce it for me? Um, since really the end of the Cold War, the great big defense firms like Lockheed Martin and Raytheon and Boeing and so forth um, have essentially become just prime contractors um, that uh, they organize production and innovation, but then they farm out most of that work to tons and tons of different subcontractors. And so lots and lots of different companies come together to produce something that we eventually call an F-35 joint strike fighter or an F-22 or whatever, right? There are lots of components from lots of different countries or lots of different companies. Um, and as we talked about a little bit earlier, some of those aren't even in uh, the United States, right? That this production gets offshored. What digital does um, is that it increases the surface area for an attacker um, because not only does the Air Force have a whole series of documentation about its needs and a whole set of understandings about what the F-35 is and how the F-35 comes together, um, and not only is the Marine Corps and the Department of Defense and um, the Navy, Lockheed Martin has a ton of stuff about it. All of the big firms that Lockheed Martin works with also have lots of information about what an F-35 is. Um, Lockheed Martin then has all of these relationships with these subcontractors, and there's a digital trail between Lockheed Martin and all of these subcontractors. These subcontractors care about their intellectual property rights, and so, um, and sometimes they're even, and this is one thing we found very interesting, was that um, we were told by uh, some fairly big intellectual property attorneys that um, a lot of the subcontractors were much more sophisticated in their understanding of uh, IP protection than the really big defense producers were. Um, but these subcontractors have their own legal representation. And of course, Lockheed Martin has its own legal representation. Um, and you know, what, what we discovered was that, uh, and this, again, this is not we, but sort of the broader um, uh, analytical community, um, is that the Chinese understand where all of these joints are, right? Where all of these linkages are. And they can attack a subcontractor. They can attack the law firm that represents the subcontractor. They can attack the law firm that represents the uh, big prime 
contractor. They can attack Lockheed Martin itself. They can attack the Pentagon. They can attack the Air Force, the Marine Corps, the Navy. In none of the places will they get all of the picture. Um, and in some places they won't get in at all. But through spear phishing and um, all kinds of other deeply researched attacks, they can get a sense of what these technologies are and sort of what they consist of. Um, uh, in a whole bunch of different sort of the um, sort of the digital cartilage that enables this relationship to happen can be accessed at lots of different points. Um, and so it's really a, a new and sort of transformative form of espionage that countries like China can undertake. And undoubtedly, the United States undertakes as well. But the countries like China can undertake that is generated by the structure of our defense industrial base. Well, so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how this plays out in terms of the incentives of states in relation to military technology and specifically sort of like the competing incentives, it seems like, for many states between acquiring military, between acquiring military technology produced by other states and acquiring military intellectual property generated by other states. In other words, how do those play off against each other? Do states have a reason to do one or the other and not both, or do they just always try to go down both paths? A lot of military equipment um, stands sort of the very apex of um, modern industrial capability. Um, so, there are very few countries in the world that can produce fighter aircraft, um, even if they want to, that can produce fighter aircraft. Um, there are not many countries in the world um, that can consistently produce um, sort of modern shipbuilding, uh, modern uh, uh, naval vessels um, with any kind of, of reliability and regularity. Um, and so... For, for many countries, there's basically not a choice, right? They're, they're, they're not making sort of a, a useful, relevant choice when they decide to um, whether to, you know, try to license or to and produce themselves or to buy uh, something or to buy the technology associated with it or to come up with something on their own, right? It's just like the only thing they can do if they want a fighter plane is buy it from somewhere else, right? That's the, that's the only option they have to them. Um, for somewhat more advanced economies, then uh, they have more of a choice, right? I can buy F-16s from the United States, or um, I can set up my own production line and then license production and get some uh, technology transfer um, from the United States. And that will then create, um, you know, positive externalities in my own economy, um, uh, you know, perhaps spur my own uh, aerospace sector, whatever. Maybe I can do some joint stuff with the United States or I can do some joint stuff with China. So like China and Pakistan right now build a fighter jet together. Together called the JF-17, and it's it's a relationship that that both countries um, find uh, find to be productive, um, and so that's why you would you know sort of make this choice between investing in your own aerospace industry, which would mean getting some technology transfer from a, a more developed country, um, and then. Uh, 
you know, I think at the at the apex are sort of the real predators, right? So China, Russia, the United States, and the European countries um, that do have this option of developing technology in house. Um, but even uh, these countries. Um, want to acquire um, different kinds of technologies and different kinds of ideas from uh, uh, from other countries, from other countries even at this very high level. Um, and so we have, for example, you know, really interesting relationships that are that are IP laden and that are um, controversial between Russia on the one side and China, um, between Russia and India, um, where there are extremely complex and, and sort of um, increasingly complex legal relationships about what each country is able to do with specific technologies. Um, and so, you know, it's just, just to stay in the realm of fighter aircraft, um, Russia and India, um, actually fell apart um, over uh, what the rights were going to be to a specific new kind of um, stealth fighter, the Su-57 stealth fighter, um, because they couldn't come to um, a good uh, arrangement on what kinds of technologies would be transferred from Russia to India and what sort of rights Russia or India would have to those technologies. Um, we saw the Chinese-Russian uh, arms relationship. So basically, right after the end of the Cold War, China bailed out the entire Russian defense industry by buying everything that Russia would produce. Um, and the Russians were like, fine, we just needed to sell it to somebody because basically Russia bought no new military equipment for like 15 years. Um, and the Chinese bought it. Um, and then the Russians found that the Chinese were just liberally copying and reverse engineering and doing all sorts of things that weren't um, they didn't have rights to in the contract. Um, and that too provided you know this big obstacle in Russo-Chinese relations. And so now the Russians, or lately the Russians have sort of restarted the pipeline to China, but they have been much more careful about um, their uh, their rights, the the protections that their technologies will have in China, and the rights that the Chinese have um, to those specific technologies. Um, so I mean, fundamentally, there's a basic dilemma that has to go with both the buyer and the seller. Right. The seller has to worry that whatever they are going to sell um, is going to be um, either copied directly or the specific parts of it will be copied um, in the place that's buying the equipment. For a lot of countries, that doesn't matter because they're never going to be able to figure out how an F-35 works anyway. Um, but for the countries that do matter, you know, you want robust systems of intellectual property protection in your customers. And one thing that we did find is that the United States in particular um, – you know, really only sells to the best in terms of IP protection, um, that the United States rarely sells to um, countries that don't have, you know, very top flight IP systems because because we're worried that people might steal our stuff. Well, so this is something that really struck me about the book, because in the abstract, from a like a pure realist perspective, it seems really hard to understand why a country would ever respect patents on military technology, given that, you know, these are existential technologies, as it were. Um, and, and it struck me that, the, in a sense, the story the book is telling is almost about how the intellectual property protections and relationships are almost like a proxy for interstate relationships when it comes to defense technology and not necessarily purely about 
patent protection or intellectual property protection per se at all. It's sort of like you respect you respect the patent because you want something else out of the partner state, not because of the intellectual property legal system itself at all. Is that right? Um, I mean, I think so. I think it's complicated, um, but I mean, I think states increasingly have a reason to respect um, the patent system because the patent system can reach out and touch people. Now, I mean, when I, I, and when I say patent system, what I really mean is like international intellectual property, the sort of the body of international intellectual property law. Um, there is a risk, even for a country like China, um, which generally speaking does not respect, um, does not care that much about stealing from the United States, right? It does, you know, it does it all the time. Um, but um, there are reasons to be wary, um, even on the part of the Chinese, about stealing stuff which sort of can legally be demonstrated to have been stolen, even from U.S. fighter planes, and then incorporating that equipment into Chinese fighter planes. Um, and the, the jeopardy is that China wants to sell its fighter planes abroad, and the United States wants to sell its fighter planes abroad. Um, and the the people in China specifically are, you know, Chinese defense uh, firms, right? Chinese defense corporations. Um, when the United States can convince, say, Vietnam to adopt certain aspects of not only the international intellectual property regime, but also of U.S. domestic, uh, the U.S. domestic intellectual property regime, um, which usually we don't do for defense stuff, but we do because seeds and, and other sorts of stuff. Um, that means that Chinese firms that are trying to sell to countries which have adopted our um, U.S. standards run a certain degree of jeopardy um, if it can be demonstrated that the stuff that they are producing and trying to sell um, has been stolen, uh, improperly uh, acquired from the real rights holders and from the real owners in the United States. Um, and so it's there definitely is an aspect of this which is arm's length, right, where Russia and China decide, okay, you know, we have to be respectful enough of one another in this particular area um, in order to have this transaction. Um, but there's this broader aspect, too, which is that we are increasingly having a system in place which can hurt China in its relations with just about anybody if we can demonstrate that what they're trying to sell is improperly acquired from the United States. Well, so Rob, in closing, one of the things I really enjoyed about the book were the vignettes that you used to introduce each chapter. And so I wonder if you could just like take one of those vignettes and talk about what happened, why you included it, and what you thought it illustrated about the particular point you wanted to make in the book. Yeah, so we open with um, a vignette about the M16 and the AK-47. Um, and th th this is a bit risky uh, because we are not uh, experts. In, I, I am not a gun fetishist. I'm not an expert in small arms. But um, M16 and the AK-47 are both assault rifles. And, and in some important sense, they are big competitors in the great field of uh, assault rifles. Um, one was developed by the Soviet Union. One was developed uh, by the United States. Um, we have a pretty good sense of how many M16s there are because um, with, you know, apart from some Chinese firms, um, because there are good licenses um, uh, that are um, publicly available um, and, and 
corporations tell us how many they've produced. Um, and you can't really produce one um, in sort of, you know, the quote unquote civilized world without paying for certain rights and, and having um, uh, money go in a particular place. The AK-47 um, is essentially in a patent-free zone or in an, in an IP protection-free zone, right, um, that it was produced in gigantic numbers by um, just about uh, not every country in the world, but by dozens of country around, countries around the world. The guy who named it Kalashnikov, or the guy who's, who it's named after Kalashnikov received certain sorts of rewards in the Soviet system, but did not, um, he is not, a, he was not a wealthy man when he, when he passed away. Um, but even the Soviet Union did not receive any, any licensing fees or anything else from the thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of AK-47s that have been produced around the world. Um, and so this is an understudied aspect of this story of the gun, AK-47, and the other gun, the M-16, is that at least one of the reasons why there are so many AK-47s and so few M-16s is that there are legal obstacles that people respect for building M-16s, and there are no legal ob obstacles that anyone respects for building AK-47s. And so that's an example that we used to open the book and sort of think about, here's an area where nobody had really thought about the intellectual property aspects of it in a rigorous way, but we're going to try to do that in this book. Rob, thanks so much for coming on the show and talking about your excellent new book. I really enjoyed reading it. There's a ton of fun stories and fascinating information in there, and uh, I recommend it. All right. Well, it's been a delight to be here, Brian. Oh, 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 oh,